Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and this month we're talking about the industrial use of drones. And uh, With me to discuss that is Elaine White, UK drone lead from PwC. Elaine, perhaps we can start with what a drone actually is. Well, drone has become a very familiar term, I think, these days, and some people instantly have a very negative view about it. If you're in the defence sector, you very definitely would not use the term drones. That's, uh, they tend to use UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles. That's the actual platform that flies. But you can have an unmanned aerial system, which is the vehicle that flies, plus all the supporting um, systems that you have on the ground. So perhaps that UAS or UAV is beaming down um, images that are being collected on the ground, being analysed and used to form intelligence from a defence perspective. So UAV, UAS, the complete system, but in short term, drones. And I think in the context of today's discussion, we're very much talking drones in the air. But actually, for some people, drones are just a platform where the person who is controlling that platform is not actually sitting within it. So that could mean it's also subsurface, sea, as well as uh, land and in the air. So some, so it does have different meanings to different people. But I think in the context of our discussion today, we're going to be talking drones that fly in the air. Just thinking about uh, that and the the sort of value to the UK economy of that, uh, there was a 2018 report from PwC called Skies Without Limits, which talked about large increases to UK GDP and a large number of jobs uh, created from the drone economy uh, between now and 2030. What are the main industrial sectors that are driving that trend? Well, I think it's worth, up, up until May last year, the, all the drone studies tended to be on a global footing. Um, and so I wanted to be able to narrow that down so it gave us a bit of a UK perspective and a UK feel on what the impact of drones could be for our economy. And that's why I commissioned this study to take place. And I think even we were quite surprised at the size of the figures that came out. You're right, it's 2030 that they base the figures on. And um, what we said is by 2030 that the drone economy could be worth as much as 42 billion, nearly 2% of GDP to the UK economy, which is quite a staggering figure. But when you then step back and you start saying, firstly, what's the spectrum of drones? And then what's the value chain in drones? When you start unpicking those two questions, then you realise how 42 billion can add up. So if I take, first of all, the spectrum of drones, different people come up with different ideas on their head on what a drone might look like. Um, There are the toy drones that are used for much more by the hobbyists, um, children, um, people who just enjoy using them to catch images um, potentially from uh, their local area or when they're on holiday snaps, that type of thing. So much more a hobbyist type of use. And then you move into the commercial use of drones. Um, And all of these that are here and now, you definitely see drones being used for filming, you see them being used for surveying, and you see them being used for inspection purposes. All of that is still on that spectrum of drones. But actually, in the future, what we're seeing is the expectation that drones will be used to deliver packages, parcels, perhaps fly cargo around the world eventually. And then 
At another extreme, we've got um, even further on, we've got drones being used to carry passengers. So urban air mobility, which will begin in a world with manned, with a, with, with a manned aviate, like manned aviation, it will have some form of control on board, but with an ambition in the future that they will be autonomous in the, the way they operate and the actual controller will not be physically on board that UAM unmanned air mobility so um, urban air mobility sorry there's too many too many acronyms here even for me to grapple with all of this time so that's a broad spectrum of this one-term drone then if we look at the actual spectrum of drones how they are being used what the actual value chain is so i said the two Mm. things the spectrum of drones is broad what does the value chain look like today from a commercial perspective We like to think about it in four chunks. First of all, you need permission to fly. Then you need to actually fly to capture the data. And from a commercial perspective, this is very much about capturing data today. Then you need to do some analysis on that data. And then you need to be able to share that data via a platform, ideally, that can be accessible by multiple different stakeholders. So if you take the four steps within that, permission to fly. This is when we can see the regulator is involved. You need people who can train on this. You need to be trained on this. You need to be qualified. You can see the type of roles that are falling out here. Then you need to capture the information. But the really more more challenging part is how you undertake the analysis and then how you share that back. And you can see that the skills you need in there are much more in that data analysis, software development, potentially moving on to machine learning and then eventually AI. And so on that spectrum of those four steps, within the wider spectrum of drones, you can see how 42 billion becomes a figure that could be reached Mm. by the UK economy by 2030. Lots of different jobs, lots of value-adding jobs. And then we also see how it can be used as a tool by somebody. I quite like using the emergency services examples. We're seeing more and more of how they're using drones as a tool to be able to give them an instant aerial view of a situation, whatever that may be, whether it's searching for missing people, whether that's uh, crowd control, whatever. So there is a broad spectrum of drones. There are four key steps today on creating value, which require all different skill sets there. And then there's also drones being used as a tool, and we can see how that supplements people's roles. And just last month in October, the House of Commons Select Committee have published the result of their inquiry into commercial and recreational use of drones. And that report both looks at the benefits, some of which you've been talking about, and some of the risks, and thinks about areas where regulation might be needed in the future. What are the main risks that exist with increasing drone use? So at this moment in time, we don't have a unmanned traffic management system, UTM for short. So there's no way that drones can be legitimately flown and tracked and required to be inputted into a system so that somebody can identify whether that's legitimate use of a drone or unregistered or otherwise. I think the building blocks to getting to the 42 billion need to be identified. And for me, building that UTM system is 
one of the most important aspects. Now, it's not just the UTM, it's a system of systems. We need to be able to understand where the drones are, what where they're flying, so it's inputting into that system what they're doing and then tracking them. Electronic conspicuity is used quite frequently in the description of what's required here. But um, for, for me, in order to reach that figure, and, and this is a point that is raised in that science and technology report, having a robust and understood and used UTM system will make a significant step forward in being able to realise the 42 billion. And putting in place the UTM uh, system that you've just described, what is needed is, uh, do we need uh, more research and development to identify how to do some of these things, like the compass, like the identification of drones? Do we need simply regulation and some government investment? What, how do we get there? Well, I think it's a combination of all of the above. And it is moving. It is progressing. And what we've seen over the last couple of years in this country is some really interesting um, projects which have tested how the system of systems can work together in, in what will be a high complexity. We're very fortunate as an emerging technology that we have a regulator. The regulator is there for good reason, and it's to ensure the safe development and expansion of, um, in this particular case, the safe management of airspace, but the safe use of the technology. When we look at other areas that yet to have a regulator, there's lots of discussion and debate on how they put that level in, um, that level of assurance. Um, because what we identified in our report last year, to truly capitalise on the 42 billion, three things need to change. We need technology to evolve, and that's going to happen. The investment's taken place, whether that's technology to allow the safe um, carriage and drop off of a parcel, or whether that's so that police can uh, use them over crowded areas, you know, that technology will and is and has developed, So, I'm, and I'm confident the investment is there. Um, we also said, though, that regulation needs to expand, and one of the limiting factors at the moment with the drone is the operator needs to be able to physically see the drone and see where it's flying. Um, to realise the 42 billion, we need to be able to see a case where the drones fly beyond visual line of sight, so where the operator physically can't see where it's flying. That's where you need your UTM system, and that's where we're seeing an increased number of um, investments. The CAA have a sandbox that they're doing to try and test and trial that type of environment, and that's working in this area. DFT has its Pathfinder projects, and then also industry are supporting um, experiments and test and valuation in this area. And last year we had Zenith, Operation Zenith, which was at Manchester Airport, to try and test how all the different systems in controlled airspace would operate together. Mm. And that was a real success. It's worth looking up if, if that's uh, something of interest. But technology growth, regulation expansion... But the third and often forgotten part that needs to happen is we need to see an increase of social acceptance for this technology. Because without that, we won't see the BV loss flying. And that will come over time as society more and more sees the social benefits that can be delivered from using this technology. And I think when people are asked about drones, there are four 
areas that are of concern. One is security concerns, one is overall safety, uh, one is the issue of privacy, and, and in new sort of developing is actually the issue of drone noise. To what extent do we need to regulate those? To what extent does technology need to start addressing those? If we're going to address people's concerns, we need to sort of uh, do that. Absolutely, and I wish I had the answer to all those, Gavin. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have the, all the answers as we sit here now. Um, but one thing I said um, in my evidence to the Science and Technology Committee is we need a vision for this country on, on what we do want our skies to look like by 2030, what we do want the social benefits to be delivered. And for me, that vision needs some key principles that we work by. And one of those has to be it is environmentally more friendly than the existing system that we're replacing. If it's not environmentally more friendly, then we shouldn't be doing it. And environmentally more friendly should be measured on a whole degree of inputs, not just carbon emission, but as you rightfully point out there, noise can be a real factor. But if I took the delivery model, the delivery role of a drone, we undertook a survey of drones um, a few months ago and tested on the public and on businesses what their view is and whether they would accept drones being used in certain scenarios. Not surprisingly, search and rescue had the highest level of support, greater than 85% of people support drones being used in search and rescue, and we can all see why. It's a life or death kind of scenario. Delivery, considerably less support, 27% of people support them being used for delivery. And again, that's not really surprising because the privacy issue, the noise, as you rightfully point out, intrusion if there have been packages being delivered to your um, neighbour's house. But if what was being delivered was medicine that your elderly neighbour was unable to physically go and pick up, then I think that 27% would probably flip and would probably say 72% would accept if that package that was being delivered was of societal benefit it's not just your next day delivery or your next hour delivery whatever it may be is actually something that that individual needs to improve their quality of life and so you can see how society will i think will accept the use of drones in this broader use case when it is for the greater good and in fact that may be an unusual example where rural and remote areas have a, a higher acceptance because a higher need. They're further away yes. from uh, medical supplies or hospitals or, or shops and other services than perhaps in an urban environment. No, you're absolutely right. And um, I think that's where we'll see delivery being used more frequently in the first instance because of the obvious benefits. And then, of course, when you look at the environmental benefit, you can see it will be much easier to demonstrate how um, environmentally it has a much more net positive impact than perhaps delivery by road, which would be the more traditional method. Thinking a little bit about education and training, what sort of training does somebody need to have now to use a drone? Uh, And does that need to change or improve or be better regulated? So there is a PIFCO, it's called, and there is a standard that needs to be met in order to gain that qualification to be a professional um, commercial drone operator, so to sell your services. 
I would contest that that might be a basic entry level than actually to work in certain industries you would want to see a higher level of experience from your drone operators. But I think that's sector specific. So when we talk to certain sectors, we will encourage them to set up a more robust in-house training scheme that that builds on that. And it's not just a one-off qualification. We need to take the lessons here that we see from our uh, manned aviation world to understand that actually being qualified does not on day one does not mean on on day 101 that you have that same level of expertise that that there needs to be um, an awareness of what that continuous training environment looks like i think the what companies need to understand who are going to use this technology is where they're holding the risk and how they mitigate that risk so if you're working in a highly regulated environment you're probably going to be a little bit more acute to what those risks are and how you want to layer your training Mm. on top of the PIFCO type level at the moment but we are seeing and when I talk about all the new jobs and such like coming out we're seeing seeing there are a number of really highly professional drone training schools out there who really set a high bar um, for the people that are coming through their courses. Um, and that's a wonderful example on that very first box of the permission to fly, of the type of industries that are coming out that will contribute towards mm. the £42 billion. And are people selling their services as freelance drone operators within wider industry, or are some big industries sort of developing in-house talent, uh, or a mixture of both, I guess? I think it's a hybrid model, so it's a mixture of both. It depends how they want the images presented back to them. So there is absolutely no doubt that the platform that does the share, so that's the fourth step, the permission, capture, analysis, share, the, that is coming from drone-specific companies. But if you uh, want to just stand at the bottom of a pylon and understand what the fault is at the top and look at live images there and then decide what if you can go up and fix it today and what tools you might need then actually all you need to do yourself is use it as a tool to send up there and and send you the instant images down. So you can see there's lots of different use cases there. We've talked a lot about the UK, which is obvious, but how does the UK compare with other countries at the moment in this space? Well, interestingly, this was some, some comments made in the evidence that was given to the science technology, and... I don't know is the answer because none of us have complete visibility of what other countries are doing. We hear the good news stories which are put out in the press but um, and we, we form judgments from that but that's not necessarily the best way to form a judgment. So I don't think anybody truly has benchmarked nation by nation and what is allowed, what's not allowed and how drones are being, how, what the take up of drones is like. So I, I don't think anybody has the answer to that right now, would be my view. People have opinions, mm. but I don't think it's based on data. Well, that's interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll see what we can find. In the recent Queen's speech, the government announced that they were going to have a new aviation bill, part of that specifically uh, looking at unmanned aircraft. Obviously, there's political uncertainty at the moment, but putting all of that aside, if there is a drones bill, if we can call it that, what does it need to contain? Well, I think I would look back at that science and technology report. I think there are so many different facets of where people, uh, of where we need to consider how to mature this sector. 
from the education that you touched on before, accountability, responsibility, supporting systems. We, we have a great opportunity. We have a great opportunity to realise that 42 billion figure, we also, in that same report, predicted 16 billion of productivity savings that could be achieved. These are significant figures, but the whole sector needs to grow together and, and that needs all of the different facets and parts to grow, um, not just a drains bill not just a UTM, but lots of different factors together. Because what we really want to do is build the trust in the technology so that we gain that social acceptance across the UK. Elaine White, thank you very much. My pleasure. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.